You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our study through the Book of Acts. We're calling it, We Are All Witnesses, Part 2. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts, and get ready to study God's Word with us. Hi, it's good to see you. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's great to be here. Uh, we're going to study God's Word together. If you're new, awesome to see you. My name is Jeff. I am uh, the lead teaching pastor here, and we like to study the Bible together, so it's helpful if you can grab your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 9, verse 19b. Um, I want to pray very quickly, uh, especially this time of year. Um, we had on Friday Veterans Day, or where I've lived the last... I don't know how many years, 20-something years, Remembrance Day. It's about the same thing. Uh, My mom died on Remembrance Day, the 11th day of the 11th month in 2011 at 11 o'clock in the morning, and it is 11 years after my mom died. So Remembrance Day for me was a difficult but also special thing to remember this year. So I I just want to praise God for all of those who've given their lives so faithfully for us in so many different ways, but specifically those in militaries around the world who've tried to defend um, righteousness and freedom and all those sorts of things. Will you let me pray? And then we'll study God's word together. Father, we are such, so blessed to live in a country where um, freedom reigns and where um, we are free to worship as we like. Uh, we're able to travel as we like and drive around and we can vote for people, it's in the last week, Father, we can vote for the people that we, we want to uh, vote for, and all of it is, is done under your providence. And Lord, we're just thankful, Lord, that we have the United States, and there are other countries around the world, too, Lord, who, who are celebrating that kind of democracy, but it has been preserved um, through um, hard-fought battles, and I'm thankful for, for those people who stood up for righteousness and truth and stood up for democracy and the freedoms that we have uh, been handed over the years. I'm thankful, Father, for those in the military, especially those who have lost their lives in the great wars uh, before our time, and even those who are serving even today. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless them, that you would grant them peace. We, we, Father, as Christians, we want a world without war. We we, we don't want anyone to fight or anybody to... um, have to shoot each other, Lord. We also know we live in a fallen world, and in this fallen world, it is uh, the Christian's duty and our duty to stand up for what's true and good. And I pray, Father, that that would be a spirit that bleeds through our military and certainly to the militaries around the world, Father. And ultimately, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So bless them today. Bless us as we study God's word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, I was a youth pastor. It's my first ministry position. Um, My father-in-law had called me on the phone when I was a senior in college and asked me, I was like one month before graduating, and asked me, do you have a job yet? I just married his daughter. And I said, no. And he said, that's a problem. And I said, yes, it is a problem. He said, well, I want to try to help you fix it. Um, He was a pastor at the time, and he said, would you like to come and be a youth a youth pastor for the next little while. And I, I was like, sure. 
Um, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I loved it. Ministry was something that really took to my heart immediately. One of the things we did, though, in our youth ministry when we were there was that we would go to this annual um, event, okay? So this, this is in the 1990s, okay? So they had weird names in the 80s and 90s for things like in extreme or stuff like that. This, the name of this particular conference was called Teen Jamboree, right? It's the kind of thing that would really go over well now if we called something Teen Jamboree. They all come. Um, but in the 90s, Teen Jamboree, and it was like these competitions between, you know, your church would compete with this church and basketball and speech and a thousand other things. It was like, I mean, they, thousands of students came and they participated. And then on Saturday night, they would have this big evening where a special speaker would come in and they would speak the message of the gospel. And they would have what's called, if you're new to the church, what's called an altar call, which means that this, this is what they consider the altar, the front. And people, they'd say, if you want to trust Christ, they get everybody to bow their heads. If you want to trust Christ, I want you to raise your hand and then come forward to the front here and we're going to pray over you. Um, and there's so many kids would go forward. We'd take about 50 kids from my uh, youth ministry in this little, small, tiny town. It was like the biggest event we did all year. And there were kids who regularly would go forward from this. I mean, kids from our community would come with us and they'd go forward at this event. And it was amazing. They would go forward. But, um, what I, what I noticed for the few times that we did, especially the first couple, was that uh, a lot of the people who went forward at that meeting, a lot of the kids, when you took them home, right, and the next time you saw them was maybe youth group that next day or, or next week, they had completely abandoned the commitment that they'd made. <laughs> I mean, and you'd ask them, so... What's going on with that? Sometimes they didn't come back to youth at all. You see them around town and you say to them, hey, we haven't seen you. Remember the thing? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. That was great. But, you know, they were smoking weed or whatever at the time and hanging out with their old friends. And you were like, what's going on with this? It caused me a lot of difficulty as a young pastor. Like, what, what is going on in this moment? This altar call, what is going on? Like, is this worth doing? What are we telling them? After that, I mean, they all come together and they're, then they go out behind the, you know, the wizard's curtain and somebody tells them something. What are they telling them? What are they telling them? That's a question I actually want to address here now. What would I tell them? Or more broadly, what would you tell somebody who's just committed their life to Christ and they want to follow him, but they don't know what's next? So what, what is following Jesus 101? What are the core things that you're going to ask people to do in order to continue in what they've begun? This passage is about the Apostle Paul after he comes to faith in Christ and you see what he does and the church does in response to him and with him. And I think you get some really good ideas here regarding what somebody ought to do and the way that they ought to live once they come to faith in Christ to demonstrate that it's real and to continue in that faith for a long time. So I want to point out in Acts, 19, or Acts 9 verse 19 to 31. I want to point out three, three things, 
three commands that help people like you and me continue in the faith. They help people who are new to the faith that, to begin, but it's still, you know, it's like everything. You, you go back to the basics in your sports. You always go back to the basics when everything's going wrong. You say, okay, what, but what are the basic things that I should be doing in order to grow? Okay, these three things. Number one, uh, turn around. Number two, find friends. And number three, have hope. Turn around, find friends, and have hope. So we'll start with turn around. Look at uh, verse 19 of Acts chapter 9 with me. We're in the second part of that verse. And here's what it says. For some days, he, he being the apostle Paul in this case, um, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Uh, so I want to think back just for a second about how he got to Damascus. Where Damascus is and what that involved. You remember uh, Paul, or Saul as he was called, was the guy who was holding the coats. You know, he's the coat check guy when Stephen was stoned to death. The first Christian martyr and, and Saul is there putting the coats in his bedroom on the bed and then going and getting for them. Is that what you do? That's what we always do. You come to my house, we put them in the bedroom, looking through the pockets and stuff, and then we put it. So he's the guy holding these things and doing this is basically his approval. Let me take that coat so that you can, you know, loosen up. Here's a rock. So he, he was a great support to the murder of the first Christian martyr. But that wasn't where he stopped. He, he started to go house to house in Jerusalem and arrest men and women. It didn't matter who you were. He would rip you out of the house, grab you. The language that they used is that Saul was ravaging the church. It's a word that's used for a vicious animal. He was like a lion who was just seeking to devour whoever it is he could find and grab them and drag them off. But the Christians if you remember, ended up going elsewhere. The, the great persecution that, that Saul was leading, by the way, I say Saul and Paul, one of them is his Greek name and the other one is, 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 is his traditional name, okay? Same guy. But, but they all left and Saul was chasing them down. How, how far was he chasing them down? Well, to Damascus. Well, where, where's that? You, you, if you remember your history classes or geography, right? Ah, Syria? Yes, it's in Syria. But let me show you a map of, this is the Mediterranean Sea. Yes? Yeah, we all go there? This is the Mediterranean uh, Sea. This is Israel over here, still, still is. Syria, up, oh, Syria in that, this part. So Jerusalem is here. These little lines are up to Damascus. It doesn't look that far on our little map, but it, it is 315 kilometers. And some of you are like, well, is that like this long? Uh, no, if you do the math, it, it's about 190 miles. They used to travel about 20 miles a day, maybe. It was nine days. So listen now. The Apostle Paul, not the Apostle yet, Saul, the persecutor of the church, the ravager of the church, has run out of people to ravage in Jerusalem. And so he travels to Damascus, a nine-day journey, 
to go and drag them back with him nine days back so that he can arrest them and hopefully have them killed. So um, committed, yes. Committed to his wicked approach to the church, yeah, he, he, he is the real deal. He is a first class persecutor. But you remember, he's on his way to Damascus and he's got the orders in his hand and then Jesus shows up in the sky and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And boom, Saul's back on his back. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Which is interesting, right? Because persecuting the church is essentially persecuting Jesus. Don't, don't, don't ever think you hate the church and Jesus is cool with you, okay? So persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus and Saul's like, oh my goodness, and then he, he gets blinded. He gets delivered to Damascus. He's sitting in a room, this guy Ananias, the Lord went and spoke to this prophet and said, go over and talk to Saul. And Ananias was like, are we talking about the same Saul? Like the ravaging Saul who came the nine days up here to, to do what he did in Jerusalem? And the Lord's like, yeah, that, that's, that's the one. And I realized, I have to organize my software on that day. No, he actually, he goes, lays his hands on Saul. Saul's, and, and when he's praying for him, something like scales fall from the eyes of Saul. This is a very, very important thing that's happening because for Luke, when he writes this down, this is both literal and symbolic. Paul, Saul, who in his blindness was going around and arresting all of these people, ravaging the church of Jesus, Saul in his blindness can now And to everything changes. For some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And after a long time he started to preach. <laughs> no. No, immediately. You can imagine, of course, this is what happens. Look, if you knew a blind person and then they ended up getting sight because someone laid their hands on them. Uh, and they started seeing you know, the world around. They've gone through a pretty significant thing. I remember Scrooge. After Scrooge went through this great evening of terror, what's the first thing he does? He wants to tell everybody about it. So Saul's like, okay, I'm telling everyone about it. This is amazing. I see the world so differently now. You ever talk to somebody who's got like that uh, LASIK surgery? Oh, it's so amazing. The greens are so much better. Oh, stop. Immediately. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. <laughs> the guy who travels all that way, Jesus is the son of God. That's the very thing that you would have had to say and he would have killed you days before. And all who heard him, heard him where? Well, in the synagogues, yeah? And all who heard him were amazed and said, um, isn't this the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Like you would have heard about this guy, right? I mean, somebody who's ravaging the church like this. If you were a Jewish person, you'd be like, hey, Saul's on his way. We don't need to worry about these Christians. He's going to come and take care of it. He's our guy. And he shows up, 
And he comes into your synagogue and you're ready to hear this guy talk about how the Christians are terrible and whatever. And the first thing out of his mouth is, Jesus is the son of God. And you're like, what? Imagine if you go to a Trump rally, just bear with me here. If, if you go to a Trump rally and you show up there and you got all this, you, Trump, I came to hear Trump. And Trump stands up and he says, we need to have open borders. And the media is amazing. I love all of them. You'd be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Aren't you the wall and fake news guy? Like what's going on here? Right. What's, what's going on here? Here's the thing you need to see is there is a complete flip in what's taking place in this, in this guy's life. Everything's reversed. Saul was creating chaos among Christians because of his unbelieving Jewish perspective. But now he's creating chaos among Jews because of his believing Christian perspective. Total 180. And that's what repentance looks like. That's what it looks like when somebody genuinely comes to faith in Jesus Christ. They leave behind who they used to be and they turn toward the Jesus they're called to follow. They deny themselves. They take up their cross and they follow him. It's not just words, it's actually actions. It's turning away from the very things that you used to do and be in terms of, you know, what you thought good was good, true and beautiful and turning toward Jesus who now gets to define for you all the things that are good, true and beautiful. I, I want to show you that that's exactly the case in several places in the scriptures and, the, and the, the biblical writers go out of their way to give you images of what repentance looks like and the image is always the same. So Mark in chapter one, he wants to describe what happened to the disciples who Jesus calls, okay? So passing alongside, Mark 1.16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in, into the sea, for their, they were fishermen. And Jesus said to, me, that to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him, okay? They they left everything that they had, everything that they were, the family business, all of the stuff. They turned and let now Jesus define for them what kind of fishermen they were going to be. They, they took, listen again, they took all of the energy that they were once using toward fishing, how central it was to their life and meaning and everything. They took all of that energy, flipped it 180 and said, I'm now going to use all of this energy to pursue Jesus who's making me a fisher of men. Uh, going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father in the boat with the hired servants 
and followed him. They left behind your family, which in those days was the defining thing for you. Who are you? I'm the son of my father, Zebedee. That's who I am. It's what you signed on pieces of paper. Saul, son of Zebedee. But no, not anymore. You get to abandon, you need to abandon all that wants to find you. And now you turn toward the Jesus who gets to define everything about you. That, that is repentance. Um, well, what kinds of things would you do? If you were going to repent like that, to turn away from all of those things, like what would that look like in like moral terms? Um, okay, so Acts 19, verse 18, also those, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic, arts, uh, they went to the witch doctor, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. So they come to faith in Christ. They go and get all of the stuff they used to depend on to control their future and everything around them. And they came and they laid it in the sight of all and they lit it on fire. And they counted the value of them and came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. Lots of money. Huge amounts of money. That's how many of these books they had to try to control the world around them. And they all grabbed them, burned them. I don't need them anymore because my life is now in the hands of the one who wrote the future. You see? You leave behind. And you follow Jesus. You can imagine, let me talk about blind people getting their sight. You can imagine, even in Paul's or Saul's situation here, you imagine that moment where he has the scales fall from his eyes, or maybe somebody like in other parts of scripture who Jesus comes up and he heals them and they get blind, they were blind and now they see and they're looking around and seeing all of the majestic colors or take the LASIK person who is like, oh, the greens and the blues and I can actually see your face and you're not as nice looking as I, you know, like you all... They see everything. Can you imagine people who've had such a transformation and what they're able to see to actually start closing their eyes all the time? I just sort of prefer what I used to do. When you want to yell at them, open your eyes. You have this great gift of sight. Why are you not using it? Why would you not? Why would you act like somebody who doesn't see when you can see? You used to not be able to see. I get it. You made all sorts of stupid decisions and bumped into all the furniture all the time. But now you see, why walk around the room with your eyes closed? This is stupid, absolutely stupid. Right, right. That's the kind of frustration that comes upon people like me when I see somebody who comes to faith in Christ and yet they still want to live in their sin. Why would you continue to live in these things? Why would you continue to act like you once were? You're not that person anymore. You're a child of the living God. Be who you are. Be who you are. Well, well, how? Like really practically, what does doing a 180 look like for people like us? Just specifically. Um, well, 
it would basically mean that when somebody comes and they wrong you in your workplace or your family or whatever, and you know that feeling of, of rage that builds up into your heart and you go out and you mow the lawn and you have rage fantasies about what you're gonna say to the person the next time you see them. And the next time you see them and you don't say it and then you go out and mow again and you're like, I should have said, and you have a whole speech. You have rage fantasies and you actually have in your heart this desire for revenge over that person. You wanna see them get their comeuppance. You want it to... So, and, and there's this temptation to try to bring it about, to use your power and your ability to bring those things about. So that person gets what's coming to them because how dare they wrong you. It's basically saying, okay, I'm going to take that. I'm going to say, Lord, I am not going to seek revenge, but I'm going to hold, let, hear you take it and uh, I'm gonna leave it to the wrath of God. And I'm not gonna keep grabbing it and pulling it back. I'm just, it's yours, Lord. It's yours, Lord. It's yours to repay. It, it would mean uh, you changing your mind completely regarding what beauty actually is. That the never-ending desire to look younger and to somehow be 50 and pretend that you don't have any lines on your face face because you're like a baby and haven't lived that long. It's basically saying, no, actually, those lines are a sign of wisdom and laughter and even joy and sadness because I've lived long enough. And actually, what God cares about a great deal is the, the inner beauty of a quiet spirit. It's not that you're going to say, oh, I'm not interested in beauty anymore. Sure, just be beautiful, wear the clothes, do whatever. But at the end of the day, your desire is actually to stand before God adorned in good works and not necessarily adorned in all the newest stuff. Because you know now that with your eyes opened, that's what's eternal. It would, it would look like uh, saying that my success in life in, is, not, is not defined by how many people think my name is great. It's not defined by what people do when I walk into a room if they think, ooh, well, Jeff Buckham is here, which they never do. They usually are like, oh, Jeff Buckham. But you would never, you wouldn't, that's not gonna define you. The amount of money you have, the number of people who serve you at your work, none of that is going to define you now. What is going to define you, success is going to be saying, like Paul says, if I boast, I boast in the Lord. That, that my success now is going to be defined by faithfulness to Jesus in my workplace. And if that means that I lose money, I lose money. But I'm going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto me. And people will think you're crazy. Why are you not climbing the ladder and stepping on people along the way? And the answer will be because the scales fell from my eyes. That's why. It would be basically having power, maybe in a business sense, maybe in an actual physical sense. It, it would be having power over people but instead of using that power as we are taught everywhere to advance your own purposes, 
It would say, I have been given this power so that I might steward it for the benefit of the weaker. Everywhere. God wants me to protect, not demean. And you'll look crazy. You will look absolutely nuts. Why, why don't you do what we do? Because I did, I did a, a 180. That's why. But I'm, I'm not blind anymore. But I see. Oh, one more just because I'm. Do you know guys know Chase Claypool? Have you heard this name? He's on the Chicago Bears now? No? He's the new wide receiver. They traded everybody to get him. He's really great. He's actually from uh, the town I used to be, a little Canadian town that I used to be a pastor in. I was talking to him on the phone the other day. No, I'm, I didn't talk to him. <laughs> but I remember, I remember he, was, he went to the local high school there. It's interesting what's happened to him, though. What he's done in the last little while is that he was actively pursuing the Pittsburgh Steelers ends, right? Like that, he, he, whatever the goals that were set by the coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, that's what he was giving all of his energy toward, 100% of his energy, working his tail off in order to get that. But in this moment, just in this moment, his allegiances switched from the darkness of the Steelers, the wicked <laughs> darkness, to the light of the Bears, right? And he's, but so now he's the light of the Bears, and he... So what do we expect of him? Well, we would say all of the energy, all of the passion, all of the fretting and all that stuff that you used to do to serve the ends of the Steelers, we want you to take that now and pursue the bears with all your gusto. Right, all of the passion that you had for the ways of wickedness, all of the things that used to define you, you take that, you flip it 180, and you say, I am running hard after Jesus. And that is what a genuine Christian does. So turn around. You get all those kids in front of you and they just made this decision in front of them. What do you say to them? You got to turn around. Really turn around. Second, you got to find friends. So um, verse 23 Acts chapter 9. When many days had passed, many days had passed, uh, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is an interesting phrase because in reading this, you're like, oh, many days? I mean, for us, many days is like, what, three weeks, four weeks? Actually, if you go into Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul actually writes about his experience in this moment. He's giving testimony to the Galatian church and saying, here's what happened to me when I was in Damascus. Here's what he says. But when, I, when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, and you could say here, on the road to Damascus, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I, I went away into Arabia. And so... There was a period of his time that he's in Damascus that he actually travels away and then he comes, comes back. He returned again to Damascus and then after, look at the number, three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Caiaphas 
or sorry, Cephas, and remained with him 15 days. And so the many days that we're talking about here, many days, is three years. So when three years had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. It's not like Paul showed up and was like, I believe in the Son of God. Get him! He went there all the time. He was a stinking, nagging pain in the rear end to all of them. And eventually they're like, that's it. We're so sick of this guy that we want, we want to off him. We want to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night. The cities in those days were walled in because you don't want invaders coming in late at night and killing all of your people. So to be safe, you lived with other people in, inside the walled city. And there was one way in and out of the walled city because that's the safe way to do it. I know in all the movies, they always have a grate that you go through underneath. No, there's one way in and out of the walled city. And it, was, it served as like the main thoroughfare during the day. It was where all of the people met for business. It's where you would bring your you know, animals in and out. It's where they would actually do courts of law in those days. It's at the gates of the city. And at night, they would be close. It was very, very easy to stake out cities like Damascus. You just put some of your buddies there, and you hang out there for a while. And eventually, Saul's, he's got to come out, right? At some point, he's got to come out, and that's what they're doing. They're waiting for him day and night in order to kill him. And Saul knows this, and his buddies know this, and they're like, oh my goodness, what what are we going to do? But note, his disciples, who? His disciples, so he's got some people who were with him and following him now after the three years. His disciples took him by the night and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is the kind of basket that they used for, to gather fish in or like, like uh, some, some wheat or grain in. So it was big enough. And you can see these guys like hanging him out the window and lowering him down on the side of the wall. This is not a normal thing to do. And the only way you do it, listen now, the only way you do it is if you have friends to do it. Remember when Jesus is on top of the house and they dig through it? Or sorry, when the, 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 some guys are on top of the house, Jesus is below inside the house and they dig through the roof of the house and they lower the guy down. You need friends to lower you down. And when they had come to Jerusalem, so he goes down on the other side of the wall, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. So he makes this trip, remember? He makes the trip back up, or back down to, to Jerusalem, nine days. And the last time he was there, what happened? He was ravaging the church. He's going house to house and dragging people out. Like, the, your brother got dragged out and killed by Saul. And you're walking down the street one day and someone says to me, says to you, did you know that Saul's back? And you're like, no! Hi, everyone hide. But on this occasion, he's attempting to join the disciples. Hey man, I'll be fine. It'll be cool. Can I come to your meetings and stuff? I just want to know where you guys gather together and stuff because I want to be part of your team. If you were one of these disciples, you know what you'd be saying. Um, no. You, no, you cannot come because 
we know what you are. You are a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're just trying to trick us. They were all afraid of him. For <laughs> They didn't believe that he was a disciple. You're a spy. We're sure of it. But Barnabas. But Barnabas. So this isn't the first time that we meet Barnabas. Actually, in the book of Acts, the last time that you saw him was in Acts chapter 4. And here's what he did. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought, them the, pro- brought the proceeds of what were sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the, the apostles Barnabas, same guy, which means, note it, son of encouragement. So, so they nicknamed him, old Barney boy, Right? which means son of encouragement. You give nicknames to your friends. I had a friend who is uh, one of our pastors in our last church and I saw him eating Skippy peanut butter one day and I called him Skippy for the next 12 years. We, we get our nicknames from all sorts of reasons. Some of you have really interesting reasons, but this guy's name was son of encouragement. I wonder why. Well, um, he's the kind of guy, a Levite, and he's a priest. Uh, he was a native of Cyprus. What he did in this moment is he sold a field, which means that he had lots of money. He sold the field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's amazing. There were a couple, there's some needy people in the church, and he said, hey, I've got a field. I'm just going to go over here, and I'll sell it, because I don't want to live with this field so much as I want to live in a church and in a place where everybody is taken care of, because I'm a son of encouragement. I want this guy to be my friend, right? Right? I need money anyway. But no, he, he's amazing. He's an amazing, amazing man. That's not the last time we see him. So then we meet him here where he's, he's but Barnabasing with Paul. And then later in Acts 15, when Paul, Paul and him actually become traveling buddies, missionaries together, Spirit calls them out, Acts 13. They go everywhere together. And then they have a big dust-up that ends their ministry together. And this is what it says in Acts 15, 30. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, look, let's go back. Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So let's do another mission trip, Barnabas. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. The last time they were on a mission trip, John called Mark was, John called Mark was hanging out with them. And he just decided it was too much for him. Right? He, I don't know. He didn't like the food. didn't like the people. I don't know. didn't like Paul. Whatever it was, he just got sick of it. Homesick, and he just took off. Which, of course, put the missionaries in a difficult spot. So Paul's like, do you, Barnabas, do you remember the last time this guy was with us? He ditched us. Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. And had not gone with them to the work. He doesn't have what it takes. We, we need people who are committed and aren't going to give up when the sign of difficulty comes. You know how hard it is, Barnabas. We need people to be committed. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Uh, and ever since, churches have been filled with sharp disagreements. 
so that they separated from each other. But Barnabas, he took Mark with him and he sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers, having commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He, he, he took Mark with him. You hear the heart of this guy. Well, come on, Paul. Everybody needs a second chance. And I've spent some time with him and he's changed. No, he's not changed. He's a weakling. He's strong now. No, he's not. Can you see the heart of Barth? So look, when, when you read this, you should come back uh, here and you should say, when they come to Jerusalem, he tend to join his disciples. They were afraid. Nobody wants to invite him in. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, believer in everyone, friend to the friendless. He took him, this is a great word, this word in the original language means to seize, to arrest. Okay, so it's not like, hey, come on, come on, Paul, let's just go visit these guys together. We can stop along the way for food. It's you with me. Marching into him, he took him and he brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul and what happened, okay? Lord spoke, boom, down on his back. When he got his eyes better, he was in Damascus. He preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Okay, fine, Barnabas. So he went in, in and out. Among them, he had, he had freedom to travel with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he spoke and disputed against the, the Hellenists. These are the smart guys who ended up killing Stephen. But they were seeking to kill him. So he's just like Stephen now. The guy who he killed, he's become. And when the brothers learned this, when, who did, when the brothers learned that they wanted to kill him, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. He says that with such funny simplicity. Again, here's our thing. Uh, he went from Damascus down here. He's in Jerusalem. He gets in trouble with all these guys. Barnabas meets him and wants to, wants to invite him in. They do. He goes in and out among them, but then they want to kill him. So they take him to Caesarea and then they send him to Tarsus. We're going to send you as far away as we Dude, we're sending you, we're sending you to South America. Why? Because we, we, we love you. We want to protect you. We want to take care of you. Do you, do you do see this? Guys, I mean, honestly, when you read through this passage that I just read through, you do notice how many times Paul is saved by his buddies and how many times he needs buddies to save him. And invite him in, right? I mean, like Barnabas, he needs a Barnabas. He needs guys to lower him down on the other side of the wall. He needs people to gather him up when they hear that they want to kill him and provide passage for him in all of those places. The first thing that Paul does is he starts preaching the gospel and immediately he finds friends. Comes to faith in Christ, finds friends. Which, of course, is what you and I ought to be doing in our Christian lives. You cannot do this Christian life thing alone. The only way Saul was able to stay alive and continue his ministry and keep following the Lord was with friends. Following Jesus is a team 
game. You will, we will fail if we, if we go it alone. What's really interesting is if you continue on studying the life of the Apostle Paul, one of the interesting things about this guy is that when he shares his heart in most of his books, he shares his heart either about the people who have left him, the friends who have left him, Demas, who is in, in love with this present world, has left me. He's in prison and nobody comes. The people who he loves the most, the Philippian church, help him. They send him Epaphroditus when he's in prison. It's the people who are there by his side at every single moment who are the highest in his mind and the ones that he desperately, desperately wants. He has an opportunity on one occasion to go to a place and they say, it says uh, that he had an open door for lots of really positive ministry there. But he says, I didn't want to go because my friend Titus wasn't there. In other words, I'm not doing any ministry without my buddies. Be because you, you can't. Man, I wish you'd understand, we'd understand this more. And I know we live in a day where Christianity is, well, I don't, you don't need to be involved in church to be a Christian. I can have my own special time where I listen to this sermon online and then I, and, and, and then I have my special worship playlist on Spotify and I walk up through the woods and it's me and the Jesus. But, but what, I'm, what I'm telling you is that you will not last very long that way, one of God's ordained means to keep you in the faith is the community of faith, is friends who will both affirm you and challenge you. Real friends, not people who just pat you on the back in this like enabling sort of way, but people who will pat you on the back and point out all the positive things and at the same time will, will draw your heart back to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, faithful to help us continue and finish the race of faith. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to, to meet together as is the habit of son, but, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the great day of the Lord drawing near. What's your job as a Christian? It's to be a friend to other Christians. Why? Because the day is drawing near and they need you so that you can continue and finish. There's been a, a good friend of mine uh, who's been in town this week from Canada. His name's Daryl. He was one of the elders at my, my old church. And so he's been in town and we've been hanging out a little bit. One of my favorite memories of Daryl is when we were, when we were riding our bikes together in this, in this, this town. I was part of a big group that was riding and I'm not, not fast Daryl's a really good cyclist, and I'm a really not good cyclist. I mean, I can be upright for a while, uh, but I'm slow. So anyway, we're riding. We get through a certain sec section of the thing, and I start to fade off the back of the group. And it, I'm like, look, I know this town. I know where we're going. It's not a big deal, right? But I was getting really tired. And in my mind, because I knew the town, it was where I went to college. In my mind, I was like, I know where the bus stop is. And I'm, I have a dollar in my pocket. I'm kidding. I might get on that bus. Anyway, so right when I was thinking that, I noticed that Daryl was slowing down, which is not something he normally does. He slowed down and he started riding right in front of me. And he said, Jeff, just, just, just focus on my wheel. I know it's, it's hard, but stay right behind me. Just focus on my wheel, focus on my wheel. And then he started talking about God knows what while I was breathing so hard. <laughs> and eventually we made it back up to the group and I, fin and I finished with them. 
if you're gonna, if you're gonna finish the race of faith, you're gonna have to have a lot of Daryls in your life. And if you want your friends to finish the race of faith, you're gonna have to be a Daryl in their life. I, f- I feel like I want to just warn you more than maybe you've ever been warned before that it is difficult to follow Jesus, through many persecutions, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If you don't have people around you to help you in those dark, dark moments, you will get sick of it and walk away. You will give in and be crushed. What you need is people around you who are going to what? Preach the gospel to you, remind you the character of God, tell you in those dark moments that yes, I know it looks right now like Jesus is not caring about you, but he is caring. He is caring and he will love you. And in the end, it will, all make, it, it will all make sense. But you need to just take the next step, do the next right thing. Man, you need people in your ear telling you that if you want to finish the race. Turn around, find friends. And the last one, very simply, at the end of this passage, have hope. So here's the last little passage here. It's just a verse. I just want to point this one thing out to you as we close this. So the result of all this was the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had, well, they had peace. And they were being built up. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Um, you, 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 okay. When you walk through Acts, one of the things that you see is this process. There is a crisis. There is deliverance from the crisis. I don't know. There's an angel who shows up and opens the prison door. You get, you get delivered by the gospel. And, I mean, there's all, you're facing all sorts of difficult, difficult circumstances. People are dying here. Their lives are being threatened. There's crisis, but then there's a deliverance. And then at the end of the deliverance, there is multiplication. That's what happens in every church, everywhere, in every Christian life, everywhere. And you're like, how is that encouraging? Well, yeah, look, we're going to have crisis as a church and as individuals. We're going to have crisis, but we have a Lord who what? He delivers us. And the, and the end of all of that is going to be this unexplainable, delightful multiplication of his work. In other words, if you're in the middle of the difficult moment, in the crisis, you do need to realize that there is a deliverance coming that will happen. I, like, speaking of riding bikes, I... I, I um, I have this stupid indoor Nordic track thing. It's like the competitor to Peloton. There's a big screen in front of you. You follow people in places like Hawaii. They have this thing on there. They're called intervals, which means that you ride really hard for a minute or two. I'm like a beginner, so it's like 30 seconds. and No, I mean, like you ride for a while, but you go as hard as you can for this period of time. And the person on the screen is like, yes, 30 seconds, 15 seconds. And their 15 seconds always seems like it's 30 seconds. Just... A little bit more. Five, four, 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 three, two, one. And then you're done. You're like, oh my God, it hurt so much. All right, we're going to take a break for five seconds. No, we're going to take a break for a while and just, you know, just, just get your muscles back into you, active recovery. And then we're going to do it again. 
I hate intervals, but the one thing that I, I've noticed about them is I, I continue through them. I never give up on any of the intervals because of the knowledge that there is a relief, there's a relief coming. Now, I think the Bible in every place is trying to remind you that to be a Christian means to have difficulty and to suffer. To be a Christian church means to have difficulty and to suffer. But it also means that you have a deliverer who nobody can stop and he will bring peace. He will bring the peace. So look, you, you can have hope. I can't say that for other people who are outside the church. I can't say that to them. But as a Christian, God has placed his mark on you and has said, this one's mine. And I'm going to bring this one to the desired end that I marked it out for. Nobody in the universe is going to stop me. No one's going to separate you from the love of Christ. Ultimately, yes, in eternity, when you die or Christ comes back, whichever comes first, yes, we will rest, finally rest in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. It'll be magnificent together. But even before that, we have promises. You will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. So look, I just, let me close all of this. by I'm just going to read to you 1 Peter chapter 5. I think it expresses exactly what I want to say. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your kindness and for your commitment to us. And I'm thankful, Father, that you have provided the means. In your, in your word explicitly on how it is that we can continue walking in Jesus for all of our days. Lord, help, help us. It's hard sometimes, Father, to turn around. It's difficult to find friends, Father, and it really is hard to have hope. But I pray, Lord, that these things would mark us as we go forward, both as a church and as people. Let us be a city on the hill, Father. Let us be lights in the darkness. As the scales have fallen from our eyes and we pursue you now with all of the vigor, knowing that one day it will all be worth it. Fill our hearts with that kind of hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.